But uh, yeah, and then the aliens just come and they surface them and they don't get the bends because, you know, the aliens. Sure, get it together, people, seriously. Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science of the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Abby. I'm Frida. And this week's episode is The Abyss. All right. Well, first, before we get into The Abyss, and I will warn you that I've never been so badly prepared for an episode in my life. I'm really serious. Like, I have never been so shittily prepared for an episode. And so I'm just kind of relying, like we've done submersibles before, so we don't have to like, we can just refer to the Meg and maybe Abby can even help me. But anyways, before we get into why I'm so badly prepared, um, Abby, what's going on in your life? Because, um, because we are two scientists, we work full time. You are doing a PhD in physics, and I was in physics, but now I'm in uh, uh, clinical medicine in AI, brain imaging. So we are two t- two full time working scientists, and so like we have this chat about like what's going on in our crazy crazy lives. So Abby, what's going on in your crazy crazy life? <laughs> oh, now I'm like I don't know what stuff things are they (laughs) come up with something (laughs) i'm just working man just trying to work trying to make science a thing (laughs) yeah i'm just working on uh, we were just chatting about it a little bit before we started recording um because i'm just we're we're both in a similar situation right now just trying to get these simulations that we're both working on going and i think it's like so I, i had an interesting chat with someone about it because we use these big codes that are particle in cell codes so they're like you pick you pick the t- which one you're going to use and then you have to run it on a supercomputer so i've managed mm-hmm. to figure out how to run it so that i can run really quickly and just change some things um that are just foundational but i think the frustration with it is that it's when you're not doing something new, when you're doing something that people have done before, but the reality is because you're talking about these massive particle interactions, everything you do is like an approximation. So you can't just do something that somebody else has done before because the way that you implement it might be slightly differently and your approximation might actually be better or worse than someone else's. So you kind of have to do it yourself. And I think is that that thing where I don't work I know it's like a physics thing that we work from first principles, but when it comes to implementing this kind of stuff, I do not work from first principles. I, it does not work for my brain to have to understand the entire physics of a system and then figure out how to implement it. My brain says, give me something that works and let me break it. And then when I break it, I'll like, I'll figure out what breaks it. And then that helps me understand for my code where I'm going wrong. Mm. that's just what works for me and like that's what I've been struggling with so like the whole time it was like I'm just building it myself from scratch and not really understanding what it is that I'm doing wrong and then finally the other day I just kind of found something that works ran it changed something that was like to my system and it broke in the way that mine was broken and I was like that's what broke it that's what's wrong with mine it was like a wonderful moment. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, oh cool. cool. 
I can actually run these. I still don't have what I need, but like it's, you know, it's a nice moment to be like, okay, I can, I can, I now know how to run this. This is great. Now all I need is data and to write a paper in the next four weeks. It's fine. Sounds good. How are you doing? I don't know what's going on with me because I, I I I had a talk this week. I had to go to Sydney, and well, I chose to to give a talk for AI and neurology, and it was fancy, and there was a nice dinner, and it was for neurology trainees. Mm. And I went to Sydney, and it was like a workshop. It was actually really good. It was more educational. And I walked into the, and basically I had two options. I had like a tighter dress if I felt confident enough to wear like a shorter dress, and then I had a pantsuit, which is kind of my. go to sort of I wear pants and a jacket but the pants didn't fit me they were too tight um, because well you know I injured my ankle I've been doing a lot of training and I think my legs got bigger and they didn't fit me so I had to wear the sexy it was like a pretty sexy dress which I was like should I do should I be sexy I was like I don't know if I can do this but maybe I'll just try but I was forced to I had a dress I had heels I walked in there and they said are you a trainee neurologist this was the because it was Uh sponsored by the the sponsors and I said Oh no, I'm the speaker. Yeah. <laughs> and and she was like, "You seem so youthful." I said, "I am youthful." <laughs> so that was cool. So I I flew to Sydney and then I have the annual conference like the the big sort of Australasian stroke conference next week and I was allocated like a really good session with a lot of clinicians as well. So I'm like speaking alongside the doctors. Mm. Um and and then like I gave a sort of rough preparation presentation to my team and my boss was like that measurement is not right like because that has been very validated in the literature a lot yours shouldn't be different like and they'll know yeah his whole thing was like you're taking that measurement from the entire brain it should be just the affected hemisphere and so that went me down a rabbit hole of you don't even want to know what I've been through because in stroke the brains aren't upright they're often like this because the people yeah. are having a stroke and so to get the side the the one half of the brain isn't as simple as just going down the middle and so I had to do a deep learning thing it, it was it's been fucked up okay yeah. and I've been working weekends and nights because it's 244 images that I have to do this to I can't do it manually and then I've got the talk and I'm like I have to upload my slides tomorrow night and and as I said, I was saying before the recording, like I finally just added the measurement correctly and like it doesn't, everything's all different now. All the other stuff has changed. <laughs> like the stuff that was yeah. fine is now different. And I'm like, it's very hard and I am struggling with, I don't know. I think that I'm not happy with my projects and I don't know. I think this whole thing is just like, I don't like it. So I hate it. Science. I think we all reach moments in the work that we're doing where we start questioning whether it's worth it to ourselves because we just get so fed up with it. And I think it's super normal to just be like, I am so sick of this shit. To me, like it's the extra inspection that comes up when you are ready to write your results up and even present it to the lords of science. That's when it comes under a new layer of inspection that you yourself didn't put it under. And that's to me where shit starts to get really real when you show it to people who are better, who are more advanced than you. See how I I corrected myself. I didn't say better than me, Um, who are more ahead than me. And then they start to poke holes. Yeah. And, and they go, you need to do that. 
and then like that's a week of work buddy you need to do that that's three days you know and so it's that which sends me into a tailspin of like um yeah that's really hard but anyway uh, yeah I have to try to take it as a positive rather than mm. feeling that criticism of failure criticism. and then that yeah. stress as well of the extra work that it means, oh, now I have to do this and I have to do that. Because I do feel that because it's every time they do it and I'm like, it's more time. It's exactly as you said. It's like, oh my God, it's just taken me another week just to do this thing and I still don't have the, and all my deadlines are shot. But like, I just have to believe mm. that every single time I make this adjustment, I understand it on a deeper level and I have more confidence in it again. So, yeah. Yeah. I think I definitely struggle with the like, oh, here's a new thing I didn't know I had to know. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I feel like I know nothing and then I feel ill equipped. And so like it hurts my confidence. It does, unfortunately, like because it's like you never thought of this. And I'm like, I was going along this whole time and I never thought of that. And yeah. and now, yeah, it's hard. It's really, really hard. But anyway, let's get into it because I'm so ill-prepared for this episode. I want to get started just so it's not looming. It's not looming in front of me. So this week we are talking about the film The Abyss. That is James Cameron's film before Terminator 2 and after Aliens. Um, And it shows. And um, I didn't – I started writing a summary and then I was like, whatever, like – I ain't got time for this. I'm going to just, you can feel free to jump in. (laughs) Let's summarize. I'm going to summarize the plot of The Abyss. Here we go. There's a submarine carrying nuclear warheads and it runs into something uh, near the Cayman Trough. Trench. Trough. I think it's actually called a trough. Anyway, and it crashes. And there's Soviet, like, scavengers moving in. And so the U.S. military needs to quickly do a search and rescue and engages this sort of oil rig that's underground in the vicinity to be a base to do the search and rescue. And they send down some Navy SEALs together with the rig designer, Lindsay, who happens to be separated from the guy who's sort of the leader on the rig, Bud, and his whole team that are underwater in an oil rig, And so they go for a search and rescue and there's a guy who has a crab in his mouth. But also one of them sees, you know, they're all starting to see weird things, which, spoiler alert, it's aliens down there in the Cayman Trough. And but also the Navy SEALs are starting to go. One of them is starting to go crazy from the high pressure nerve syndrome and decides that they have to send one of their little submersibles down and nuke the aliens. So they have to stop the nuke. And a lot of shit goes down. Basically, in summary, we have nuclear warheads, aliens, 17,000 feet deep under the ocean special dive suits, implosions. I mean, this movie is fucking crazy. And then the aliens, deus ex machina. It's, in, it's hilarious at the end. And we'll get to that later. But, um, oh, I forgot a hurricane. I'm sorry. Oh, There's yeah. a hurricane in the middle of all of this. This movie, it's a lot. So that's my weird summary. And, cool. um, okay. So, Everyone is fine in the end, except yeah. the people that die. But we forget ocean, about this. Navy submarine nukes aliens. Aliens deep dives, hurricanes. <laughs> the abyss. Okay, 
The abyss is really crazy, but before we get into what we think about it, we need to get something out of the way. Yeah, don't uh, we? I, yes, we do, Frida, because I'm just going to tell you right now, if you ever pick a movie ever again that is not available for streaming, I will refuse to watch it. Like, hardcore refuse to watch I have never been so angry watching a movie in my life. I do not have patience for this shit, okay? So, for some reason, and I cannot find the reason, I've tried to look it up. Nobody has distribution rights to The Abyss currently. I don't know why. It's not on any streaming service anywhere in the fucking world. So what did we have to do? We had to illegally, yes, we illegally streamed it. Frida sent me the link, I illegally streamed it. Which meant that it was buffering every fucking minute. I had to watch it in two parts because it's a two and a half hour movie. I couldn't possibly sit there and watch it buffering for that long. It took so fucking long to watch it that at the point where they were having the sub fight with coffee and I checked the time left and I was like, how is there still an hour in this fucking movie? Are you serious? So I don't feel like I had the experience of the abyss that I should have had. Was this your first time watching it? Yes. And I also, 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 because I couldn't watch it also, because I couldn't watch it on my laptop because my laptop wouldn't open the, uh, the page. I had to watch it on my iPad. So I had to watch it on my tiny little iPad screen, buffering. So I think that they pulled it. Do you reckon they pulled it because of OceanGate? Because I watched it on streaming services during the during the uh, pandemic. Do you think? I watched it. Oh. I watched it. I've watched it before, so but this wasn't my first oh. time. So I'm really sorry that this is what happened to you. Yeah. I went and got my hair cut yesterday, and I turn up to the hairdresser at ten in the morning, and I'm like. I'm so tired. Like, don't look at me. He's like, why? What were you up to last night? And I said, watching a bootleg version of The Abyss, it took me five hours to sit there and get it done. I was up so late. I think that's why I'm like fucked right now. Yeah. It's because I was spending Friday <laughs> night up so late trying to finish it. And then, you know, I had stuff to do yesterday. And I think that's why I'm just a total mess. It's because we had to watch a bootleg version of this movie and like, <laughs> Can you stream it? I'm really sorry that, that that was your experience because at least I have watched it from start to finish in good quality and I'm really sorry this was your experience because it is it is really crazy. Yeah. It's it's um all right. Well, do you do you think you can like summarize how you feel about it? Do you no, have No, I do. So so I will say like so the first half I found really hard because I was watching it in the evening and the buffering and it was driving me crazy. When I watched the second half in the morning, mm-hmm. I think just it was just easier there maybe just wasn't as much traffic on online or something like that so it it was easier for me to actually get into it so once I was getting into it okay. like I was really I did really enjoy it um there's a couple of things about it that that, that I did kind of feel though um like there's something about it that like it's it's quite dated in its approach now but only because so many movies follow the exact same formula. And I think that's the only thing that I didn't kind of enjoy about it, where I was just kind of like, we've seen this formula so many times now that I'm just finding it a bit hard. It's just like, I felt myself kind of eye rolling at a few things, which I felt bad about. Cause I was like, you know, if I'd watched it when it first came out, I wouldn't have had that feeling. But now other movies yeah. kind of ruined it for me, if that makes sense. You know, the whole you mean thing the where formula- like when she, 
like the whole the whole thing where she comes down like she's the only fucking woman she comes down and it's immediately obvious they try to make it like a big reveal and it's like well that's obviously your fucking ex-wife like obviously yeah you're like that that's clearly what's going on here and there's just yeah. so many different things about like just the whole the the guy goes mad there's the that that happens then this happens and it's just uh, he almost died yeah the military secret operations yeah i i think that it is it is tropey we can talk you know we'll talk about the tropes in a bit but i can acknowledge that they the actors are amazing and a lot of it is really good but it doesn't mean that yeah it is tropey and can i you know what's funny because we've just done close encounters of the third kind and i would say that close encounters of the third kind this is his Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yes, absolutely. What Close Encounters is to Spielberg, Abyss is to James Cameron, including the reveal of Aliens at the end, which I feel wholeheartedly Spielberg obviously defeats. And I think that it isn't there because it's not tight enough. You know, Mm. the plot lines and and all the complexities honestly just feel like insane add-ons as opposed to just more coils of like a beautiful story i was annoyed that especially given it's james cameron i was annoyed that it was aliens like i just didn't see the point Mm. of it being aliens i was like why can you not why can it not just be some creature that lives at that depth have they can look pretty much the exact same have all that beauty of those visu- visuals but just have this thing where there is a second intelligent life on earth and they're just but we've never mm. met them because they're they exist yes. at that depth and to or me that, make it a hallucination it, kill him at the end for fuck's sake just kill ed harris <laughs> kill him i'm so I'm like what the fuck i you know when I, the first time i was watching it he's going down there and i'm like this better be a hallucination well, oh no it. no i love i thought they looked absolutely beautiful i thought the visuals of the aliens i thought it was incredible but like he made them look very much like stingrays and everything and i was like why can't it just be an intelligent creature that then helps mm. him get to the top yeah it falls flat well you know what because i'm giving away my what the fuck and everything like that mm. but i will say that um you know what i might just you know not talk about cast just yet i'll talk yep. about james cameron because this industrial light magic is that what it's called yeah. industrial light magic this is this use industrial light magic and you see a lot of this is precursor to terminator 2 yeah it's precursor to um avatar you know so you yeah. see all of the cogs kind of turning for james cameron for sure mm-hmm. um and that on that basis it's interesting but i look at this movie and i think james cameron is a fucking idiot that guy is an idiot what are you doing? And when you read about the production nightmare, I'm like, you're a fucking idiot. Like, let's go and read about the production. What a horrendous nightmare it was. And it's very famous for being a terrible production nightmare. But like, you're trying to do too much. This is insane. Like, what are you accomplishing? Is this cinema or is this just, are you nuts? Like, I just can't understand. The alien, like, why? Okay. But anyway, so production stories aren't worth rehashing in full i'm reading now although it seems like the behind the scenes discord on the abyss would be mentioned as much as some of the other more famous ones had ed harris and mary elizabeth mastra antonio that's her name mary elizabeth mastra antonio had 
not refuse to discuss it. They literally refuse to talk about this film ever again. And that's why it's not as talked about the behind the scenes stuff as, for example, Apocalypse wow. Now or some other films. Because when they finish that film, they, they, they refuse to talk about it, which is crazy. And, but, um, but still, the, they could, the, there was toxic during the promotional junket. There was this article says it couldn't keep the toxic floodwaters from gushing into outlets such as the New York Times, who described the harrowing six month affair where 40 percent of the action took place underwater in two tanks at an abandoned nuclear powerhouse in South Carolina. Beyond the notorious challenges of shooting on water, which famously actually tamed Steven Spielberg, this experience was so fucked up that it stopped Steven Spielberg sort of uh worst instincts with Jaws and he kept most of the movie on dry land. Um, The tension between Cameron and his three leading actors was often explosive and Cameron expressed limited sympathy for them on the promo tour as well, which happens precisely never uh, on those things. And so it seems, and some of the stories I've heard that they were treated inhumanely what they were expected to do, you know, and this whole idea of like in service of, in service of what? This movie is way too over the top. A lot yeah. of this stuff is not necessary. What do you, it's like, it's just to do this crazy accomplishment. It's like, what? It's like, it, that's why I'd look at Cameron and I look at Spielberg's vision and I look at Cameron's vision and you look how Spielberg's, Spielberg's finished product comes together yeah. beautifully and, and you, you feel it's worth it. And then does the abyss come together in a way that it makes it feel like that pain and suffering is worth it? Mm. Yeah. Not so much. That's mad. I always just thought that, like, I thought that this is one of, like, the most highest rated movies. I mean, it's a, it's a... I would say it's like this incredibly important film for so many reasons because in the history of film it accomplishes so many great things that clearly led to other great things. Like people stood on the shoulder of the abyss. There is this kind of... So there's two things to to this, right? There's... um, People say it a lot and it's been happening a lot. People have been saying it a lot to me recently because I've been talking about some like famous scientists historically... And people like to bring up the whole um, uh, genius comes with a touch of madness. But we do this with creatives as well. So we do this with like directors and writers and stuff where we excuse bad behavior because we say the vision, you know, the genius vision. And, and you know, you have to allow them to create their vision and it's all part of it. And it's expected that the director is going to be a bit like quirky or a bit odd or whatever or uncomfortable or uh, but at the same time, I actually just think that all when when you have someone who is behaving like that and when you have like people around them that are maybe running and organizing things that allow them to behave like that, it's just enabling because you don't have to you don't have to act like that to evoke what you want. I think like so we talked about it a little bit with Alien with Ridley Scott, um, but I don't. Like, he did a few things with the cast, but I don't think any of the cast were unhappy with what he did. Like, there there mm. was moments, like, where he did things, like, where... Do you remember we talked about how before the scene, before the big scene where the, the alien comes out of the stomach, he held them back for, like, four hours or something, purposefully, mm. because he mm. wanted them to be in a certain state mm. of agitation and irritation when they went to film that scene, because they weren't told what Delays. was going to happen. 
Um, yes. And I think for that specific effect, I think you could understand that as an actor after the fact, you might be annoyed at the time, but after the fact, you might think like, okay, I can see why he did that. But like, it's not like he would have then done it to them again for retakes. James Cameron does have a habit of um, doing many, many takes. And because he wanted, and, and what he says was that he felt like putting them through that again and again made them crazy. So the actors did feel like they were in a crisis together, like the characters are in a crisis mm-hmm. together. And then it brings out what he wanted to bring out, right? But it's like, that seems like, couldn't you rely on the acting abilities of your. I mean, I'm just saying, like, the whole idea of bringing out a performance by making everyone stressed out, it's like, it's a little bit sadistic. But, but you specifically, can do it in different ways. You don't have to do it by having them have consent. to do retakes under the water for 20. Like, you yeah, know, exactly. Like, like we said with, with Ridley Scott, like, you could do it with just, you know, putting in certain types of music, just certain environmental yeah. triggers to help your cast kind of bond and, and get that yeah. frustration and stuff without it being... Yeah, uh, a I wonder like, why. I'm disappointed in James Cameron. It's amazing to me that James Cameron it didn't stick to him. What he did to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantino, whatever, um, got it, Master Antonio. Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio was treated very badly too. But it's interesting to me, probably because she she never spoke about it. And either yeah. did Ed Harris. They were done with the movie. They were just like, we're done. Whereas a lot of those other people talked about it. So it didn't stick to James Cameron. But the scene that she was being resuscitated, she was there for hours. I mean, like I'm talking four hours, and she was exposed her breasts are exposed and she's sopping wet in that scene and it was done so many times that at some point when they felt like they had a good take they ran out of film and at that point and the funny thing is like if you're going to put your actors through this at least be efficient enough to have all your ducks in a row so that your job as a director and 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 the crew is everything's lined up with this Scott right if you're going to do that make sure you have everything together so that you can get it in one take because I'm pretty sure it is the first take in Alien it is the first take that's your job that's your job you know but he had them do it it was about four hours and at some point she got up and said I'm not an animal and left and actually a lot of that scene is you know he's just screaming at nobody to be honest like when he does scream and I love this scene in the movie it's my favorite part like honestly I love the drama of this sequence fight you never gave up on anything in your life bitch now fight and he's slapping her he's screaming at nobody because she had stormed out at that point i love that scene i do think it's amazing i do think he got amazing performances out of them it is um, wonderful but but the the, the question comes down as to was was it was what he did required to get those amazing performances or would you have just had them anyway like probably it's just that's frustrating because I do want to say that in that I agree with you about that whole sequence what I loved about it was the part just before it where she drowns yes Um, I loved that it wasn't just a case of like she'd made this decision then she drowns and then she goes I love that whole moment of her getting scared where she suddenly thinks this is a terrible idea this is actually oh my god I don't want to do this because it's so real it's like of course she'd be fucking terrified 
I thought, yeah. I thought she was absolutely Loved brilliant it. in that. When they kiss, honestly, it's so amazing to me. I, I When I watch it the first time with my partner and our relationship was ailing at that point. And I just remember being incredibly moved by the fact that don't aren't we dumb? Aren't we humans so dumb how we engage in conflict until the last minute where we realize none of it matters? Yeah. And it's so moving to me that it's clearly in this moment where they realize that they're petty and they've been hurting each other and they're petty. And, and all the love kind of comes out in that one moment, but it's maybe before her death. And it's like, it's so incredible. And I, I, I do love that sequence, even though I know what happened to her in it. It doesn't stop the sequence being amazing to me. But yeah, I think they're top caliber actors and they probably could yeah. have done a bang up job without being tortured. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's move yeah. on. Um, that's production. We'll come back to the scene, the science of that scene later. Mm. But like, do we need, you know, do you want to talk any more about the cast um, performances? Is there anything else you want to highlight? I don't really any have anything cast? about the, the performances um, particularly. I've got like a couple of bits where that I just really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the guy. I don't know who's, I don't know anyone's name. Let's just be real. The guy who played Catfish. There's one scene where when we do get that, where we get the amazing scene of the the water, the alien kind of communicating mm. with the water and Catfish mm. wakes up out of his bunk and he grabs up a plant pot to use it against it. Loved Love that it. scene. So funny. I just, I thought he was great. And what I really enjoyed as well was he's got a bit where he goes with Bud and he says, wish us luck. And I immediately went, oh, so you're dead then. Because I just assumed mm. it was obviously, and then he didn't, and I was like, "Oh, cool." <laughs> that that was nice that it was actually just when like, he swims, yeah, without the suit. Yeah, yeah I, just assumed, I love that scene. I just assumed that, like, oh, this is this is just a classic setup for you know. He's like, "Oh, you're not going alone. Wish us luck." Then it's like, "Oh, catfish is gonna die. You're and gonna he didn't. die." It's like cool. I feel like they didn't know that they killed all the people they needed to kill. They had a wave of deaths in the beginning, and then everyone mm. else survives. And I appreciate as well that um, what's her name, Knight. No, Dark Knight. No, what do they call it? Um, oh, I can't remember. One Night, One Night. Yeah. Um, I love that she survives. I, I, I did, now that we have the negative shit aside, I hope we can uh, get that to the side and go, I loved all the diving. I loved the diving drama. I loved yeah. Mary Elizabeth Manster Antonio getting in. Every time she gets in a rig so capable and she's driving the submersibles or whatever she's getting into. And then I loved the sequence of them I guess we're just talking about our best bits now, but I love the sequence of them both diving and then him saying, I can't make it. And so he goes to the moon pool um, and you assume that guy went back, but no, he he, yeah. he thought I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it to the moon pool. And I, and I also love when he goes to fight coffee, loved coffee. He was phenomenal. Uh, Michael Bine, when he fights him and, and Mary Elizabeth, Master Antonio Lindsay is like, that guy's a trained killer. There's no way. And and it's true because then he gets out his little knife and he's doing his old Navy yeah. SEAL like knife moves. And you're like, you're not a match for him. He can see you from behind. But then the guy comes up through the moon pool. I, yeah. There were so many like sick sequences in this film. Yeah. And I think that there was a point in the movie after the hurricane where it just was, it was like pedal to the metal. It was crazy. Uh, and a lot of it was like really good action. Yeah, no, definitely. I really enjoyed the the only thing I will say is like so the, the part of me really loved the aliens, really loved the visuals, really enjoyed it. Part of me all I could think about was the toys that you get at Panto. I don't know if you have this in Australia. Totally. When you go to Panto in Ireland, everyone get all like there's always these toys that they sell and they're just flashing light toys. 
Yeah. Like you just get, it's always like clear and it's just got like some thing in the middle and then it's just like, so you get all these multicolored yeah. flashing lights. So just watch <laughs> it and it's just like panto toys. <laughs> it's literally just panto toys. The aliens yeah, are panto toys. When you're at a fair. When you're at a <laughs> yeah. fair and those stalls are there and that, yeah, Raph is like, please. Yeah, they've yeah. got like, like things sticking out. They might yeah, be yeah, like, spinning. Like, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, like, there's, yeah. I think that it is, it's like, it's so clearly precursors to some of the more sophisticated stuff later which which makes it great because because it's not as if it's the last thing he ever did it's like yeah. one of the earlier things he did so it's it is cool to see the earlier things and know that he went on to create flawless yeah you know flying things in avatar oh um, i do want to say as well uh, like another scene that i just really thought was really cool was the whole bit of the crane the crane falling down dragging yeah the, yeah. So the whole thing of it falling down it coming down the drama of waiting for it to land it missing them but then it falling over the edge and watching the huge cable just like mm. spiral down behind the crane and then finally catch them and pull them it was like that's it was just yeah. a really cool sequence yeah, I agree. And I, I also love movies when they introduce us to an entirely new environment that we'll get to in a bit. And, and you go, this is so cool because they have to be hooked to the thing that's on the surface and they have to unhook it in a hurricane. My God, that makes so much sense. That's yeah. so cool. James Cameron is really, really good at that, of having a cool technical sort of idea. It actually reminds me of like Michael Crichton books where like mm. it's some really crazy like technical sort of science thing, but like it's the drama, it's science drama or like technical drama um, that it's very satisfying. I love that. I love just the Navy SEALs, how menacing they were. Yeah. You know, they were just so, I wrote, I wrote Navy SEALs, so much menace, so menacing. <laughs> I loved them. I loved them. I loved yeah. how f- crazy they were. And especially like the one guy with the bandana and, um, you know. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. Okay. Um, <laughs> What other what other like fun cool stuff? Uh, that's in all. The that's all of my stuff. Everything else for me is just like to do with the the mm, science stuff science. that you're gonna get into. So yeah, I love the pot plant one. Like that was so funny. I knew you were gonna. I knew you were gonna mention the pot. Plant. It was just I great. The... It was just so random, but it was also like it was like I'm gonna defend myself, but I'm not gonna do it in a non-threatening way, which I just enjoyed mm. about it. It wasn't that that classic thing where you get like, I'm overly aggressive. I'm going to try and shoot the water, uh, which is kind of what Coffee and the Navy Seals were kind of their approach. Whereas Catfish is just like, I'm a bit freaked out, but not so much that I'm going to get too violent about it. So I'll hold the yeah, plant pot just in plant. case. <laughs> yeah. And um, I wrote something here just back to the scene with Lindsay being resuscitated, which I can't even stress how how great that entire sequence is. The thudding of the paddles as one night is trying to shock her heart. Mm. The thud, the sound, the sound is very good. And the the the, doom, the thud, yeah. it's like from hell, the depths of hell, this like thudding sound to try to resuscitate her lifeless body. It's so good. It's like yeah, I ugh, so good. Um and the 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 sequence that leads to Coffee's death as well with the implosion, we'll obviously talk about pretty soon. That sequence, I wrote, it's a crazy sequence leading to a shocking death yeah. of, of them chasing in submersibles. It's shocking. And then he dies. And the whole thing is, it's breathtaking. It might have been easier to watch the second half because the second half is much 
better than the first half. Yeah. Like the first half might drag a bit and then it gets to the, once once coffee runs off, once the hurricane starts and coffee like runs yeah. off to, to nuke the aliens, like then then it just goes, it doesn't let up. All right. So let's let's get into uh, themes. I haven't written any themes. What is love? Um, humans mm. doing bad things to each other and um, deep sea. You know, pl- that's it. The sea. Yeah, no, I think the there's, shit there's down in the ocean. <laughs> Do you know that James Cameron was separated from a woman, maybe a co-producer, one of the people that produced, or someone that was working on the project? He was married to her and separated at the time, and maybe he was working out a few things maybe imagine that there's a woman that you're separated from and so you make a movie where there's a woman that the main character is separated from and he says fucking bitch the character and you're like no no it wasn't me it was just the character i didn't say it it's pretty <laughs> yeah but he also has to okay. get back together at the um, end, tropes so, you know. yes he does all right okay tropes yes. i have so many i have so many I don't I even know how many, wrote but I'll just start. Three. One, two, three, four. I, five. I've got two repeats. I've got two of our classics, and then just one. Oh, oh! I've yeah. got. I know. I know what one of them is. Is molecular it molecular level? <laughs> molecular level. I was like, oh, it's just like, I feel like there should be like a ding, ding, ding that runs every time a movie says on a molecular level. <laughs> I know. Um, What was the other one oh, that was Dennis a repeat? Yeah, it was like, yeah, well, they weren't saved from a nuclear weapon, but yeah, just, just, just the addition, just the addition of nuclear armory yeah. in a story, which really didn't need anything else. Um, it was like two brothers. That's kind of what we're looking at here. So my tropes were the stubborn ex-wife. Yeah. You're always so stubborn. I think that that is a gross trope, um, between men and women that are in a relationship where the woman is called Mm. stubborn for basically like just not agreeing with him and resisting. And the idea being like, you'll, you'll see my side and you'll eventually submit or like even worse, like somehow this is like a part of the chemistry between us is you being stubborn and you're a brat and I'm going to like dominate you. I just, it's the, the calling a woman stubborn. It's, very humiliating. I'm I don't not, like it. I think we. I think we've got to call it, it out. Kind more. of. It, it did bother me a little bit in the way the portrayal of the only two women in the movie that they both had to be very masculine, that they both had to have masculine traits and attitudes in order for them to survive within that environment. Although I would believe that that would be accurate. You know, one night to be on a, on a rig like that, that you know she would have to have some sort of. Um, strength in the same way as the men and then but the whole thing with Lindsay is that so like one night is is portrayed as quite masculine but then Lindsay is like she's still feminine but in order to counteract that instead of her being like one of the oil rig dirty you know um guys for Lindsay to still be feminine so she's desirable by bud she has to be a bitch and that's the thing and she says it herself she's like oh it's it's hard being a cast iron bitch and it's like 
it's just that betrayal, that way of like, this is the only way that these women can exist in this man's world is they have to have these traits. And I would believe it mm. for that yeah. environment and for that time period, but it just bugs me that that's the truth of it. Yeah. There's no doubt the, f- the first woman you see walking there and everyone calling her a bitch, it's mm. disgusting. Like you'd have to be in deep denial to not realize that that is incredibly tropey and gross to have all these male seafarers and the first woman that turns up everyone's like hate working with women bitch 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 it's like yeah okay guys calm down um okay and so then the next trope i had was a hysterical woman because of course she's the one that loses her shit with the navy seals she's like screaming and screaming and they they oh yeah i've been wanting to do this a long time by the way i've been wanting to do this ever since I met you, he says, and his are hands are way down and there out of sound you... effects and you don't know what's happening and it sounds like her clothes being ripped. It's very uncomfortable. It's actually very upsetting. And then it's almost like it's a joke. It's like it's like it's a joke. It's I've been wanting to do this, rip, rip, and then it's like, oh, it's actually a gag. Like a literal gag. To yeah. shut you up. Yeah, I I look at these movies and I'm like, are you kidding me? It just was so normal back then. Yeah. It was so normal in movies because that's how people saw women. Like, we've got a woman in the film. And I'm just glad we're not there yet. That's all I have to say. And I've had these conversations with with my son. He he asked me um, why there aren't any women in Tintin. (laughs) Oh, And I was like, oh, it's just sexism. I was like, these days it's it's so normal to have just women in like yeah. it's just it was old fashioned and and people just didn't didn't put women in unless it was someone's wife or something. And these days I was like, it's so normal. And I was like, Lord of the Rings. I was like, there's no women in the Fellowship. And then she was like, how about Ewan? And I was like, yeah, that was amazing. When when I went Ewan when Ewan turns up in Lord of the Rings and goes. I am new man. I was like, yeah, that was like the yeah. moment of the century for all women. And yeah, that was huge. That was one moment in like an entire yeah. trilogy. So yeah, I, it's just, it's changed and kids are thank, thankfully growing up where women are just yeah there as a fact and not as a bitch. Um, okay. my Priya, ad- yeah. before you get more yes. into this, I'm just going to let you know that your microphone is scratching a lot off your jumper. Got it. Twisted. Hmm. That's better. Okay. So my next trope is the secret military operation. Nuke everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Classic. classic. My next one. The last one is the CPR trope of like, it's over, man. It's all over. Oh yeah. yeah Putting yeah, yeah. the hand yeah, and going and going. Uh, she's gone. My one is, um, I don't know how to describe it. I don't have I don't have a term for what this trope is, but it's basically the weird guy with the rat. Like yeah. not specifically the weird guy with the rat, but the whole thing of there being an animal randomly on the, you know, I mean it's it's the cat in um in Alien. Alien. Like it's the 
but it's like, oh, there's a rat down here. So now I'm going to befriend the rat and I'm going to take care of the rat. And it's like, oh, don't let the rat die. And the rat is my friend. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how, I don't know what trope it is, but it's just weird guy with weird, animal. Weird guy, weird, weird rat guy. Yep. The weird rat guy trope. But trying to make it yeah, cute with, and quirky, you know, it's kind of like, oh, he's got a bond with the thing. Like, oh, yeah, it's how you that. signal that someone's a little dim, but really nice. <laughs> Harmless, yeah. but dim. He's the Rat on shoulder. Relax, he's like, you're, you're making the women nervous. You, how about, sorry, Shawshank Redemption, the crow in the pocket. Oh, it's definitely remember. like he comes to the prison and he's like, everyone here are thugs. And then the guy's like, I need more food. Are you going to eat that? Why? He's like, because I have a crow in my pocket and I give him leftover food. And that's the point where you're supposed to be like, oh, they're, they're all really nice people. They're just nice people. I think it's like a signal of like, oh, how bad can a very, person very be? difficult to watch. So I've watched it Fair once enough. in my life and I will never watch it again because I cried a lot. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I was just trying to think of weird rat man tropes <laughs> if anyone else can think of i'll invite commenters to think of any movies where someone has a strange animal in their pocket or on their shoulder and what you what we think uh, it signals so i would say someone has said green mile used it as a plot point <sighs> he revives the guy's mouse the guy kills his yeah gotcha yeah, no, trope. It's high. and the guy that has the mouse is also dim but harmless. Yeah, yeah. and then he and then, yeah he gets it bad. He get, he dies badly. Nice one. So okay. if it's a weird animal, then it means the guy is dumb but harmless. If it's a normal animal, normal. It's, you know, maternal instincts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a weird animal means dumb but harmless. <laughs> Dumb but harmless animal trope. Anyone who has trope. a mouse, a rat, up. a cockroach, a crow. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's cat or a uh, dog, different story. <laughs> different story. <laughs> All right, go on. Okay, science. Yes, please. This is incredibly messy, but I'm going to try my right, best. We'll so you. first, we're going to talk about where they are, the rig, the Cayman trough. And also I want to talk about what the moon pool is. Firstly, the Cayman Trough is near the Cayman Islands. At its deepest, it's 25,000 feet or 7.6 meters, uh, 7.6, 7,600 meters plus and minus. And they're on the edge of it. And in my head, I'm like, I think in my head, are they um, 12,000 feet under? Like that's what it is in my head. But honestly, I couldn't find the exact number. I had that and then I couldn't. Anyway, but... There is a point where the guy's falling into the trough and he's at 17,000 feet and that's the record or whatever. So yeah, yeah, it goes down to 25,000 feet. Anyway, I trust James Cameron that all these details are a-okay. I don't really need to verify them. And also plenty of other people have done this. Actually, there's a lot of work on this science of the abyss. But what I was interested in is what is the rig, the oil rig. Yeah. So I, I just want to say that they really built it. At, mm. in a tank they built it in okay. a huge tank they had wow. two tanks one held 7.5 million gallons of water and it was like the largest ever tank ever <laughs> that was ever filled with fresh water and then another tank was 
2.5 million gallons. And so the bigger tank, they literally built like a four-story rig that had like functional wow. uh, functional levels where different stuff happened. So it's insane. So, and what the rig is, in the Wikipedia, it kind of gets around it by saying it's an experimental oil rig. So we can say it's not an oil rig that actually exists. She's designed something different where they actually are sitting at the bottom of the ocean and that they have, you know, they're connected to something on top via cables. This is not a normal rig that is seen anywhere else. But it was like her special design. Right. But I did find all the different types of uh, sea drilling rigs that do exist going up from what is the shallowest to the what is for the deepest water. It's a barge rig that is less when, when, the, when they're drilling less than 20 feet. <laughs> a submersible rig only goes up to 70 feet. So you have columns or posts that are submerged into the water and filled to specific levels the columns are to determine the depth and you have drilling equipment on the platform above and it drives a a driller unit that's below. So the actual drill unit is under the water and the equipment on the platform drives it, whatever, but that's only up to 70 feet. Then we go to up to 400 feet and it becomes a jack up rig and it gets this name because it can be, it goes directly over the location fixed and then they jack literally like jack up the rig so that it's uh directly over it and it gets elevated from the bottom of the ocean floor to secure it in place so they they kind of put it there and then like jack it up and it kind of stays there so it's directly over the area but there's it's nothing like sitting at the bottom it's sitting at the top it's just so that's a jack up rig and that's only to up to 400 feet then we go to 1700 feet and that's a platform rig so they anchor a steel framework that is actually built like a permanent structure to the ocean floor as a foundation for the surface drilling rig and the living quarters. And again, everybody lives on top of the water. No one is submersed. Yeah. And then when you go to 12,000 feet, and this is to quote from this like rig drilling website, it's just called a floating rig. It said in very deep water, it is not practical to attach an offshore rig to the bottom of the ocean. So they basically have a floating rig that's not attached. They just use anchors yeah. um, on, and something called dynamic positioning so that keeps them somewhat over the target, but okay. they're just floating and they're not fixed to the ocean floor. So there is nothing on any level like deep core yeah. that is depicted in this movie where oh. they are on like 12,000 feet, you know, and then – living there, <laughs> yeah. um, anchored to something on the surface. You would only have something like that. Submersible rigs are only up to 70 feet, literally. So she had designed something that <clears throat> did not and does not exist. Yeah, okay. All good. That's yeah. the alien trope thing where you go, well, maybe they had different technology, so we can forgive that because they yeah. say it's some new crazy design. Now, and then the thing the thing about how they're all living, so they have this moon pool where, the, where they have the ocean that's, like, coming, yeah. you know. And so they're actually existing at the same pressure as they're at water pressure. Because if they, if they were inside, they're at a different pressure 
the moon pool, that water that's coming up from the ocean, wouldn't just like be hanging out there like a regular pool, which tells us that they are all living at the water pressure. So, and James Cameron was very careful with all the details about all of this. So the moon pool is like, it is used, it's a real thing that's used in pressurized uh, habs. Yeah. Where people live. Was that called like a... As long at habitat, as long as the air pressure equals the water pressure, the water stays there. So that would mean that they are living at that pressure. And so, in fact, the entire habitat is at water pressure. And like, that's why we'll get to the problems that they have with the nerve pressure and everything like that. Um, But they have a lot of technology in the rig that allows them to live at that pressure. But of course, there's only so far you can go. And eventually they need to have the dive suit. Um, to go even deeper and apparently like all those details are correct like with water pressure because as we know james cameron understands these things yeah so um yeah like i and anything you want to say about that like any extra information that you have to be fair i think i probably missed quite a lot of those bits at the start because of Mm. buffering (laughs) 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 so it's like just a lot of the a lot of the um whatever the setup of it I kind of like I missed the fact that they were living down there I just yeah I guess I was just like hey they're down deep cool (laughs) they're down deep and they're living at the water pressure basically um okay which makes why they can dive without a suit because they're just adjusted to the pressure but of course that creates huge problems uh for their nitrogen uh which we'll see in a, it will see in a little bit okay. okay so in the beginning of the film this is like the big thing about the abyss is that they have this deep diving suit where if they have to go even deeper and he uses it at the end instead of breathing oxygen or mixture which is actually what they're breathing they will um breathe an amniotic fluid essentially i mean it's you know and so he he breathes a wa- liquid instead so it just helps your lungs survive under pressure because they're not filled with air they're filled with something of a different density okay. and i want to tell you that this is all very real this, this is, is really wild. crazy yeah go on, although please. the actor did not really breathe it the rat really breathed it <gasps> they really did that to the rat oh. that was real because animals have breathed this. Like this yeah. this has been done before. It is okay. called oxygenated perfluorocarbon. Per That's what it's called. It actually exists. And it's definitely the most famous depiction of it, but it's been experimented with for over a hundred years. So wait, and so is even it only been experimented with, with animals or with humans? Nope. With humans. Okay, and have have people who, like, have divers actually done this? Yes. Wow. It's not ready to actually be used in diving, but it does have possible other applications. But it has been tried by people that volunteered. And I will tell you that the, the, the right after the First World War was when there were first experiments on this where they were using oxygenated saline solutions to heal the lungs of soldiers that were 
uh, damage by poison gas. But it wasn't until the 1950s. That's just the idea of like liquid, inhaling liquid oxygen, basically. And it wasn't until the 1950s that really research really started to take off when they were basically trying to research how to escape from a sinking submarine, which without suffering decompression sickness. So to have something emergency on board yeah. like this, in case the worst happens, how they can surface without, uh, you know, dying um, of decompression sickness when they came up. Now, decompression sickness, which is different from what is in the movie, that's HPNS, yeah. high pressure nerve syndrome. Decompression sickness is called the bends, and that results from breathing air at pressure. So with the di- diver descends and the water pressure increases, yeah. more and more nitrogen from the air becomes dissolved in their tissues. If they ascend too rapidly, the sudden drop in pressure causes the nitrogen to come out of the solution. Um, it forms bubbles that can cause, you know, little tiny explosions or even a stroke. Yeah. Um, so that is the bends. So therefore they have to ascend very, very slowly and make frequent uh, decompression stops to allow it to grad- the nitrogen to gradually be released. So that's the bends. Um, but if you could rise uh, with a liquid oxygenated sort of a liquid sort of solution, then the pressure inside and the outside of the lung will be equal. That prevents the nitrogen building up and the need to decompress wouldn't actually be there at all. Um, so that's why that that's why if you had had an emergency like rapid ascension because there was a submarine crash that you would might breathe the liquid oxygen. Um, anyway, and that's sort of why, why it came about, which is really interesting. Um, the liquid oxygen also eliminates this whole thing. There's something called nitrogen narcosis or yeah. rapture of the deep. It's an alcohol-like intoxication that's caused by when you breathe nitrogen under pressure, you basically, it, it makes you kind of drunk. Mm-hmm. And it actually also happens with oxygen below a certain death. That's called oxygen toxicity. So that's why divers have different mixtures, actually, that it isn't just the normal mixture. They, they breathe a different mixture that actually has uh, helium as well as oxygen and nitrogen. But even this only works up to a certain point because below around 160 meters, even breathing helium induces severe tremors. And that is high pressure nervous uh, syndrome. So as a result, the deepest any breathing pressurized gas has ever been able to descend is 701 meters um, and that's only in a land-based diving chamber actually not even underwater um, and so I guess those are all the limits of breathing gas and right. that's where the liquid thing came in the high pressure nervous system I want to come back to that because the way they're depicted in the film is total nonsense it, it's something which comes up it's like within two hours you're gone if oh. it happens it, it like you, you don't live with the sickness for ages and hide it if it starts up, I think within a couple of hours, you could be dead. Fuck. So it's not like he, the way he was just like living with tremors is completely not yeah. accurate at all. Okay. It's, it's acute. It's an acute syndrome. I just wanted to say that. I'm going to okay. skip a bit because there was a lot of research onto the liquid nitrogen. I think that there was a lot of side effects of a buildup of carbon dioxide that they couldn't quite get rid of. Right. But there was a huge breakthrough in 1966 with American researchers called Leland Clark and Frank Gollan made a breakthrough um, where they made a solution called, this was called uh, perfluorocarbon or PFC, um, which is what we see in the movie, okay? Um, and it was developed actually as part of the Manhattan Project during the Second World War. 
um, and it's composed of carbon and fluorine. Um, that's what the liquid is. And the bond between the two elements is among the strongest in nature, making it unreactive and biologically inert. It has twice the density of water, but a quarter of the viscosity and can hold nearly 20 times as much, as much oxygen and carbon dioxide as water. Um, so it makes it ideal as a breathing fluid because it can hold so much oxygen. Um, and then their early experiments involved... Uh, immersing rats and mice and allowing them to breathe naturally and so again like that in the movie with the rat it's like mimicking real life experiments I'm going to jump forward because this is so interesting when they had the larger animals by the way it did it actually required forced ventilation like they couldn't do it on their own and so the the mice breathed it in naturally but larger animals actually did require it to be like forced uh, and then again forced out okay this is where it gets really cute. Between 1969 and 1975, uh, this work was con uh, they conducted all these like really comprehensive study on liquid breathing using animals and humans. And in the course of this research, a U.S. Navy diver called Francis J. Felechik became the first human to breathe oxygenated saline and PFC. He received no medication except for a local anesthesia to facilitate intubation. Um, and he didn't find the experience overly uncomfortable, but they did have a difficult time draining the liquid from his lungs and he developed pneumonia. No. Very interesting. So he was intubated and it was like forced, it was forced yeah. ventilation, but they had trouble getting it out. So it seems like with the larger animals, there is a problem getting it in and getting it out, but he actually yeah. didn't find the experience uncomfortable. Now, this is amazing. In 1971, Falechik delivered a lecture on his experience, which was attended by 17-year-old James amazing. Cameron. And that inspired him to write a short story that would eventually become the screenplay for The Abyss. Amazing. So their research showed that a human could breathe it for up to one hour without suffering carbon dioxide poisoning, provided they didn't overly exert themselves. Right. Um, so it did make it a, a viable option for escaping a submarine. If all you were doing was just like floating yeah. up or in this case going down, you could do it for an hour without having any buildup of carbon dioxide. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so cool. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah. Yeah. So it's completely viable that he could do what he did. Yeah. And makes sense in that he wouldn't frame. be able to, that there wouldn't be enough time for him to come back. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He only would have one hour left because then the carbon dioxide would have built up too much because mm. it holds too much carbon dioxide, the same way it holds a lot of oxygen. So, um, yeah, like these details are all based Amazing. on science. I do respect him a lot in the way that yeah. he finds real life cool science and puts it in a story. Like it's it's mesmerizing stuff. It really is. He's a real dork, and yeah, I really appreciate that about him. I just wish he wasn't so weird about method acting. Well, I mean, is he still? I, it's not something that we should talk about right now. So. But maybe maybe we'll find. You know, maybe this was an experience that changed his approach or something. I we hope could maybe so. Hope. Maybe he was misguided. <laughs> Yeah. I like to think that a young James Cameron was somewhat misguided I, with no, like what I a imagine, director. I imagine that he looked at how 
like in my I'm honestly this is what I'm telling myself happened that he looked yeah. at Ridley Scott directed Alien thought hey that's a good idea but just did it wrong mm. <laughs> yeah because he's yeah he's NQR yeah Interesting. He's an interesting guy. He really is because he does these. He reminds me a little bit of Chris Nolan in the sense that he does these um, amazing technical like feats. His films will stand up, and they still stand up as these incredible accomplishments of technical accomplishments. Yeah, and that's what he adds to film. And same way Christopher Nolan adds this because he's like. You know, a lot of these movies, they go like, how did you do that? This is so amazing. And it adds so much, mm. you know, even though he's not quite a Spielberg, but, you know, not everybody can be Stevie. <laughs> okay. So other thing, there's so much more science. So let's move on because I want to talk about a few other things. Let's talk about very briefly, actually, Lindsay. What Lindsay? Okay. I didn't have time to get into this too much, but here's the gist of what's accurate and what's not accurate. What she describes is like, there's some kind of mammalian diving reflex thing that you can, that sometimes happens during drowning, which causes some children to survive falling into ice. You know, I think it's very different than depending that it will happen yeah. You know what I'm saying? Just because you can explain why somebody survived a situation that they shouldn't have survived, it doesn't mean that you go, I can rely that this will kick in, you know? Yeah. So um, so that's one thing. But then again, narrative storytelling, is it possible in the realm of possibility that she could induce hypothermia, pass out, her heart will slow down? That Sure, like, I guess for narrative purposes, the issue that I have with all of this is that she should have suffered enormous brain damage oh, yeah. from being okay. dead for that long, for yeah. being dragged through for, what, 15 minutes and then being resuscitated. She, she should have died. But then again, is it possible that that could happen? Anything? Yeah, I think so that I, a lot well, of... Well, I suppose the yeah. question is because, right, if we remember when we talked about... um, Oh, Jesus, which one? When we did Alien, actually... And I talked a little bit about stasis. It's not something that we've gone into in too much detail, but we did talk about the research that was done. I think it's University of Maryland where um, they they found a way to cool the body down to a certain temperature that stops all the functions uh, so that they can have a bit of longer time to do surgery. Mm. And then bring the body back up to temperature after the fact so i just wonder is is there something to say that maybe it's so cold that not only could she be resuscitated but is it almost kind of like going into cryo in some sort of way mm. that like the yeah, brain functions I, and, and have maybe, slowed down so that maybe there wouldn't be as much damage as um yeah and like maybe she she just has such a slow pulse that they can't feel it maybe she was alive yeah i think yeah. that you suspend disbelief all the time to watch movies and personally I love that scene and they do use some scientific basis to explain that there is a very small chance that they could succeed and they took the chance and she chose the chance and it worked loved it um okay next thing that I want to talk about actually is super cool because um it's the I'll leave the ocean gate shit for the end but the 
explosion of nukes underwater because you asked about yes, the explosion of nukes underwater. I did underwater. just want to know, like, what would happen? Dude, my science hero, Joseph B. Keller, the father of the geometrical theory of diffraction, did secret military work <laughs> calculating exactly this oh problem. He was hired by the military to calculate what would happen if a nuclear bomb at that time let's call it an atomic bomb exploded under the water he did the maths <laughs> and although it was secret um i did find an interview i really did with him and he was such a great guy he was like really quirky he was like a real dream and a lovely lovely person and he only died like within the last 10 years and he had a big family and he was like wonderful wonderful person and i i really loved learning about him because i love when your science hero is truly the kind of scientist that you I like I that's how I always wanted to be and I like there are people that this are is, absolute cockheads that they uh, are yeah. lovely people this is how I feel about David Hilbert I just so like my my David I, Hilbert is Joseph B Keller yeah I'm just, I'm just like David Hilbert is just like oh I mean you just like he's just he was a good one it's just so yeah lovely. and also jo- Joseph B Keller is one of the only people to ever win the Ig Nobel Prize twice Oh, okay. Once I can't remember what the second one was, but he did a he won an Ig Nobel, which is like the inverse of the Nobel. It's like weirdly as prestigious, but he calculated why a girl's ponytail, a woman's ponytail, goes into a side to side motion even though she's jogging up and down, and she, it's called ponytail motion. That's ah, a study that he did, amazing. and it was because the the up and down motion is not is not stable with respect to perturbations from side to side, and so it swings into a more stable side to side motion. Thank you, Joseph Keller. But some of his military work was was this, and this was an interview, and he was so good at explaining stuff. So I'll just take his words. This was an, an interview. He says, when an explosion occurs underwater, the explosive gets converted into a gas. The gas is under very high pressure and it expands and produces a bubble and the bubble gets bigger and bigger and bigger until finally the pressure in the bubble has grown down so low that it stops expanding. Then the water pressure outside forces it back, so that back in, and so the bubble oscillates. I worked on that problem with a colleague, Ignace Kolodna. The theory of that oscillation has already been developed by Raleigh during the First World War. All these motherfuckers, seriously. What we did was to modify the theory to include the loss of energy by the shockwaves that are sent out from the bubble, which makes the oscillations decay in size. Also, when the bubble oscillates, the water motion interacts with the top and the bottom, and that causes the bubble to move. It turns out that often the first shock wave that the bubble sends out weakens the plates of the ship. This is if it's near a ship. Um, and the second one breaks them. So I'm trying, he's talking about like these this granular details of what happens with atomic shock waves. Um, yeah. yeah, and so he's like, my advisor was working on underwater explosions of atomic bombs in connection with the proposed bikini test of the atomic bomb. A question we yeah. were asked, among others, was that would that underwater explosion produce a tsunami that can cause damage all around the Pacific Ocean? We calculate that it would not cause any damage far away. By the time the waves reached anywhere with a reason- reasonable population, the amplitude of the waves would have gone way down. So, like, because when you think about the... So the actual, the first, so the Trinity test, right? Mm. Um, and knowing after the fact that anyone downwind of the Trinity test 
got like you know the nuclear fallout and you know caused a lot of issues and a lot of people died as a result of the fallout from the from the trinity test which is something that's just never really talked about or discussed but like when you think about bikini at all then you're like okay so what was that just the they realized what the effects were of detonating an atomic bomb on the surface and then thought oh when they're going to do the hydrogen bomb let's do it in the ocean instead but like all i can think is like what what did that do to the actual marine life Mm. Like how, yeah. what happened to the actual marine life in that region? Has anyone ever like talked about that? I was just wondering. It just makes me sad. I don't, I don't know if there's any documented information about what would happen to the seabed or the mm. sea or the sea life. Um, but this whole idea of a bubble that oscillates really fast <laughs> seems all right to me. <laughs> okay, moving on because um, I want to also just talk the last thing I really wanted to talk about was the imploding scene, which we mentioned before. It's insane <laughs> that the guy implodes. And obviously uh, we just had this implosion. I don't think there's anything so much to say that hasn't been said already um, because James Cameron himself spoke up because uh, he obviously did it. We, we were in the Meg where we spoke about his work in submersibles down to the yeah. Mariana trench that he's been deeper than anybody. And, you know, the idea of the combination of which materials and molecules are used in the actual submersible and what should the shape of the submersible be to withstand the high pressure is is research that has already been done. And so there was really no need for what happened on Ocean Gate to happen. But I suppose we, ne- we kind of know what happened. And well, did it happen because... so? That, that's the thing. That's the thing that I found so confusing about it um, was that so many people, um, so many people are saying that, as you said, Cameron himself included, about how, you know, you know the materials that that are required in order to go to these depths. So why did this company create something with different materials and not tested adequately. Like, I just, I, I don't think I fully understand what the fuck happened. It just sounds mm. to me like everyone was going, we knew those materials wouldn't work. Why were they doing it? Saving money. I'm assuming it's the same okay. reason. Don't you think? But yeah, it was because, so when everything is designed and manufactured and tested, tested perfectly, what you end up with is a shape close enough to, close enough to perfection that's able to withstand the pressure being applied from all direction. And in that scenario, the material should be designed to somewhat breathe. It should be able to shrink and expand yeah. as needed with the depth. Um, and most of, if not all, submersibles and submarines operating at depth would have a pressure vessel made of a single metallic material with a high yield strength. And it's typically steel for relatively shallow depths and titanium for deeper depths. Mm. Um, and so you have titanium or a fixed steel pressure vessel. It's usually a spherical shape and it can withstand the crushing pressures you would expect at um, the 4,000 metres that the Titanic is lying at. But the Titan... Um, its pressure vessel was made of a combination of titanium and composite carbon fiber, which is very unusual um, okay. because they they have different properties. And it's because titanium is elastic, as we just said. It can adapt um, without any strain. 
after it returns to atmosphere pressure. It can shrink and adjust to pressure forces and then re-expands. But a carbon fiber composite, on the other hand, is much stiffer and does not have the same type of elasticity. So you can speculate or some people might be able to speculate, not me personally, that what happens when you combine the two different technologies, they don't behave the same way under pressure. Um, and so there would have been some kind of loss and integrity um, due to the differences in the materials. And a composite material could potentially suffer from what's called is delamination, which leads to separation of the yeah. layers of reinforcement. So it would have triggered an instantaneous implosion due to the underwater pressure. And in less than a second it would have immediately crumpled from all sides. Wow. Once that, once that limit, once the limit was broken. Wow. Yeah. It's a terrible thing because it yeah. seems like the research had been done and the testing had been done. I don't know. Yeah. I don't understand it either. And I can only assume if you remember, don't look up. That's mm. kind of the whole subplot where the billionaire goes, I got this, and fucks yeah. it up. Yeah. yeah. And so I, f- I feel like it would have been the same um, fatal Defer- flaw. Yeah, it d- would just be and hubris. We, and we are, doing, we are doing this in society now. We are deferring to billionaires as if they, because we are deferring to people with money as if the act of actually having a lot of money is intelligence. It's like we've lost we've lost this concept of what yeah. it is to actually and, and intelligence is a weird thing because like we can talk about you know there's there's different ways to be intelligent. We've talked about this before. You know, it's not just about like what number you get on a math test. It's like the, my favorite is street smarts. Yeah, like but there's so many different types of intelligence, but when you want to talk about something in terms of um like, like that just because somebody has money doesn't mean that the product that they have created is good. I mean, we talked about freaking what's her name, Elizabeth Holmes as well, Theranos, when we did the mini the minisode on the documentaries, like that whole thing. She just got a lot of money, but her product didn't work. Like, I mean, hmm. it's just wild to me that we now seem to view the whole Elon Musk thing. It's like you know, oh, billionaires, money, money, money. Look at what he's done to Twitter or X or whatever the fuck he wants to call We're it. We're obsessed now. with billionaires. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like true. oh, because you've got money, therefore you're something to aspire to because you did yes. something that got you money. Instead of recognizing that, yeah, but you know, he did something that got him money, and now he's fucking everything up because he doesn't have intelligence because he doesn't understand the products of what he actually fucking has right now he doesn't understand he didn't understand social media and how twitter works and he's fucked it up he's he's fucking up tesla he's like do you know what i mean it's like just because he has Mm. money he now has arrogance to think that he can just do what he wants and that everything will cater to him and it's the same thing what happened sounds like it's the same thing as what happened with that submersible that it was like the guy was just like no 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 no, i've got this and it's like but the entire community is telling you you don't have this because everyone's mm. telling you what you've done is scientifically inaccurate and will yeah. not withstand what you're trying to do. And he took yeah. other people's lives into his own hands with that and they allowed him to do it because they thought, you got money, you know what you're doing. And he yeah, fucking he's, didn't. He's like, yeah, he's like, I've got money, I'll hire the dream team of uh, engineers and they're just going to do my bidding. And I'm sure he was like, that's expensive, can't you do it cheaper? He probably bullied the shit out of them too, you know? But it makes me sad that there was a kid down there. It really, yeah. really, really upsets me that someone took their kid there. 
and took such a risk. And I think the thing about James Cameron being a dork is that James Cameron immersed himself in the real like engineering culture of submersibles with all the other submersible geeks yeah. to try to like solve the problem as an as a person of science which is like we're people of science we're in there trying to actually solve the problems because we like immersing ourselves in a particular problem and finding the best solution and that's being science geeks and it's like these billionaires come in they're like <laughs> that's so boring like i can just throw money at the problem instead yeah. of going the long route of educating yourself and getting a degree if you have to and like working from the bottom up to try to like understand about materials or whatever also like you go the route of james cameron mm. But the, but the thing as well is like you could be the billionaire and you don't have to go the route of James Cameron. But what you have to do is the people that you hire, all the engineers that you bring in, you have to listen to them. It's very common. It's all these people that are like and the whole I'm a visionary, I'm an entrepreneur and this is my TED talk and I'm going to make it happen and I'm strong and I believe in stuff. It's like it's under the blanket of all of that nonsense, too. And meanwhile, yeah. everybody that is in your immediate vicinity knows that you are absolutely full of shit. And I would say just a word of caution for anybody, you know, that that is uh, like, no, I am strong and I'm a visionary and I'm going to, you know, be hard on everyone around me. It's like to just you got to listen to people. So you got to make sure you are actually capable of listening. Don't yeah. get so full of yourself that you are no longer able to listen to anybody else. You should the always be able to listen to other people telling you, I don't think you're right, no matter how successful you get. I think that it's a pitfall for anybody that's successful. Even if you're really successful and have done really well, it doesn't mean that you aren't as fallible as any other person. So, I just, yeah, I just think that it's the natural thing of thinking that you, you're infallible when you get successful. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the science. So that's Woo! definitely enough for me. And I think we can start wrapping the episode up. Um, and I'm hungry. That chicken smells good. Yeah. And let's do what the fuck. <gasps> what the fuck. All right. Um, what is your what the fuck, Abby? Is there anything you have? Yeah. So my what the fuck is okay. So coffee is a uh, you know. So he's he's chatting to his his buddy. Can't remember the buddy's name at all. But he's chatting to the other Navy SEAL guy, and the second guy's noticing something's a bit off with coffee, and he's shaking, and he's a bit you know, like seems like he's not firing in all cylinders. And he's saying to the guy like, "You should get some sleep." And it seems like he's going like, "Oh shit, something's wrong here." Coffee's not making good decisions. Cut to the next scene and he jumps into the room like Rambo with a fucking bandana around his head and a machine gun like next to Coffee just being like, yeah, we're holding all you guys up. We're taking control. And it's like, but but in the scene before this, you knew something was wrong with him. You knew that he wasn't making good decisions. So why are you now even more gung-ho into what he's doing than even he is why are you why are you there with a bandana why are you rambo i don't understand I know. why he was suddenly rambo this is like the same issue we have with a depiction of astronauts right these are depiction of military elite that they follow the chain of command and one guy is like you can't detonate a nuclear weapon without a command to do so if you have lost contact with yeah your base you can't and so the guy's like why and the other guy's just some moron and like how why are you a navy seal that's been selected especially and also a moron although it does mimic a cuban missile crisis by the way yeah but they still had a chain of command when they had lost um 
they were going crazy and they do mention the cuban missile crisis here everyone was going nuts just like these people were going nuts and they had lost connection with their base and they didn't they didn't they thought they were under attack and they almost made the decision except that they had to follow the chain of command to one person you know said no so it does mimic to a degree what actually did happen although they followed a chain of command they still had you know rules and it seems like the guy was just doing what he wanted and i do not believe that a navy seal would just be like sure yeah sure (laughs) unless yeah but then you go oh but they're all going mad but not all of them are going mad no it was just why did why was that guy he was just coughing that guy suddenly acts like he's some kind of like duh okay (laughs) yes boss and even the guy who's got the injured leg is looking at them both going what the fuck are you doing (laughs) i know he's like the normal what is happening so, yeah. yeah, it's so bad. That was mine. Um, what was yours? Uh, the end. Like, I'm sorry. What the abs- absolute fuck? This. <laughs> you mean the close encounter spaceship? Okay, so then he goes down. Don't, don't bring the close encounter spaceship into this. But it's the same this. shot. It's the same shot. He mimics the close encounters shot of the ship. What does he lake. mimic? No, so what in Close Encounters, when we first see the full ship, when you first get that visual, it's that really slow thing over the, um, like over the yeah. over the over the mountain. Here he's on the cliff ledge, and it's that really slow shot of the ship mm. coming up and growing. It was like, oh, it's, it's it, this is his Close Encounters homage. <laughs> he loses that fight. Yeah, so the guy <laughs> goes down, and. The alien takes him into a tunnel and puts him in a room where they push the water and make oxygen. Okay. And then they read his text messages out on the, on the screen. That's how they're communicating. But they are down there for a very long time, these aliens, whether they came and they've been living there watching humans on their iPads going, these humans are always at war. They are disgusting. We are going to kill all of them. And then the first contact, which was always going to be a deus ex nucleus, by the way, was actually with this guy and his text messages are saying, somebody had to do it. I knew it was a one-way trip. I love you, wifey. And so they were like, oh, the humans are okay and we'll save everybody. Okay, I did and not. Then, mine, no, my, my, why my would reading you know of that? that entire thing is yeah. so different. So what? different. Okay, so first off, um, I just kind of assumed that because of the aliens being like water beings, that they weren't really interested in humans. They didn't really look at human life. They were just down there because they were checking out the ocean life. That They were just like explorers. It's kind of like E.T. rocking up and checking out the vegetation. It's like they're just like down in the ocean looking at the... And that they weren't yeah. going to uh, let themselves be seen or anything, but then they had contact with... Um, because mm-hmm. the rig came so far down, suddenly there's humans in that environment. Um, there was a whole thing with the alien where it was mimicking her. So the text messages thing, I didn't read that as that they understood them. I didn't think they understood them. It was just mimicking. I thought they were like, oh, here's the communication back. So just putting the messages up. He was like, no, uh, no, that's unambiguous in my mind. Yes, they had the little (laughs) rover. They had the little rover messages, but he went down there and they read his text messages 
They were like, we read your messages. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for being selfless. They were like, you stopped the nuclear bomb. They were watching all of it on TV or whatever. You know, they were watching the movie. I love when characters in a universe of a movie just seem like they've been watching the movie itself. How do you know that? And then they read his text messages out and then they bow as if to be like, thank you. And he was like, no problem. And then the, and then I just wish he was hallucinating. I would have been so happy if the movie just finished on an hallucination, but no. <laughs> what the fuck? They bring the spaceship up they to surface, everybody. They have to get everybody. him up out of the depth in some way without him getting the bends. So, you know. So the aliens did it. It's funny yeah. because it's it's sort of like with 2001. Here's a movie where this person is like technical... Yeah. prowess and he's, he's showing so right. oh and, and the flight attendant is getting the not just the one meal the two meals and going to the pilot and every detail and then they're like space baby whatever you know and this is like this movie where they go oh yeah james cameron he's so on top of all the details he's gonna have the thing and he's gonna have the rat oh yeah yeah that's a reference to the real world experiments but uh yeah and then the aliens just come and they surface them and they don't get the bends because you know the aliens sure <laughs> And so (laughs) get it together, people. Seriously. So true. It's It's so true. Great, 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 great. Random ending. (laughs) Okay. Like it's, that's why I I go, you were doing well. And I would look at this movie as some like cool, technically accurate movie. If it wasn't for the fucking aliens and the ship at the end, like pick a lane, motherfucker. (gasps) Anyway, that's the end of the episode. Let's do some ratings. Yes. Um, does it pass the science <laughs> test for female no. representation? No! no. Oh, yeah, it's pretty bad. We've discussed it. There are women there. Yeah, no. It doesn't pass our Sam's test. Does it pass Here Comes the Science? Ambiguous, in my opinion. It, yeah. Ish. It does. It, until the aliens. Yeah. I think, it, yeah, but it, it's as you said, it's this, I think it's that same thing with a lot of stuff for us where it's like, he uses a lot of technical detail and a lot of technical knowledge to give us. So I think if you take it in two parts, the whole human side of everything, excellent. The whole amniotic fluid, amazing. I'm obsessed with it. Amazing. But then on the other side of it, he does, but like you can't fault him too much because he does exactly what we always want him to do with the aliens. He doesn't fucking explain anything. Aliens exist, can do things humans can't, done. Because we don't know. It's maybe there is an alien species that could live at those depths, that could bring the humans up, and could do something to the humans so they don't get decompression sickness. Like, I'm so tired of that. I get that, but like, no, don't pull us, don't lead us on where we're going. Oh yeah, I can verify that exactly. Do you want either or? Do you do you want like yes? Yeah. Okay. So if you're gonna give me this technical idea that I want it for everything, or you don't fucking explain anything. Yeah, yeah. Like, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't take us along and then say aliens did it, because that that trope of like, yeah, but you know, maybe in the future they could do it, you know, and that explains everything. When you're in a movie that's super explainy, and then you just want to wrap it up quickly, and so you just go off the, you just go <laughs> off on another planet and blame it on aliens. That's bad filmmaking but it does actually make me appreciate when movies are amazing it just shows you how hard it is to really make a complete beautiful fantastic movie where the where the tone is the same i think that crazy tonal shift is just it's like get it together that's why close encounters 
is as amazing as it is because it holds the thread stays the whole way and the tone stays the whole way. Yeah. And, you know, and the big alien ship doesn't ruin anything. It actually just enhances it. So all I, most movies aren't perfect. Most movies have weird wrap ups at the end where you're like, you had me going for a bit and, uh, but you know what? Yeah. Still great. So I would just give it a yes, just because it seems normal yeah. <laughs> that movies do this. All right, let's rate it. What does the all abyss right. get out of five? It's hard for me because of the actual viewing experience that I had for it. Makes it like really hard for me to be objective about how I feel about it. I'm going to go like with a three. I was going to go 3.8. I don't know why. Yeah. Probably the aliens. Okay, Abby, <laughs> what is the next movie? Eric just turned up. Oh, Eric right was now. over here with me. Okay, bye, Eric. Oh, he came to visit me. Um. <laughs> Abby, what yeah. is the next movie? Frida, I'm really excited about the next movie. I'm act, like I'm genuinely really excited about this. So it's a movie that just came out recently enough on Netflix. We're gonna do They Cloned Tyrone. Very oh, excited. Shit. What the fuck is that? Cool. And you know, I'm seeing Oppenheimer on 70 millimeter in two weeks. I just want to <gasps> tell you that. In case you're planning that to do that at some point. I will, but I think I'll wait until it comes out because I want to watch it again. Okay. I've got a few things about, yeah. I mean, I've already got most of the science of it done. <laughs> but, okay, but I think I think it's, right. it needs a few views. But yeah, they clone Tyrone is no. This is going to be fun. Great, and let me see. Are you trying to figure out what mini we should be on? Oh, dude, we're so off with the minis. Uh, two hours. Oh and yeah, no, we okay. Need to, okay, we need to say that actually. Um. So because because of the way we record and stuff, uh, we're extending this cycle a little bit uh, so that we'll take a break over Christmas. But that means that we have to add minis to our miniseries, which is all about movies, sci-fi movies that are so bad. Could they possibly be good? Uh, so far, no. Um, but we need more movies. So if anyone has recommendations for um, a movie that's, objectively terrible yeah we are gonna be so exhausted i kind of think we should just embrace how much we're gonna hate and just it'll just become its own thing okay so thanks for joining us i i don't know what's going on next week is is it pluto nash um no because no not even remotely it's baby geniuses (laughs) join us next week for baby geniuses Or not. <laughs> Up to you. It's absolutely your choice. TikTok at Science at the Movies. Gmail. If you want to suggest any movies that are so bad they're good at, it's going to be at uh, Science at the Movies at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at Science at the Movies. Also, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm pretty tired, so I'm just going to say yeah. goodbye. Okay, bye. Bye. Somebody's just suggested Weird Science. I didn't think Weird Science was a bad movie. I I thought that was thought of as being a good movie. Am I wrong about that?